Let's pray this morning before we turn to the Word of God. Father, thank you for the privilege of worship this morning. Thank you that we have the sufficient and authoritative scriptures that are easily available and accessible to us. I pray that this morning our hearts would be open to learn from your word, to learn of you and perhaps to be convicted and to not just dismiss that pain that might come to our hearts, but to become more like our Lord, that we would be pleasing to you and useful to you in service. In Jesus' name, amen. You can take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 1, though we will touch on several different passages that will be as good a place as any for you to, to keep your Bibles open to. Uh, if you weren't here in CE hour, you, you missed just a classic statement by Rodney, and that was that Pastor Graf is no longer with us. <laughs> Although what he meant by that was that he... He uh, defended his thesis last Thursday, and he went to Katie's graduation over the weekend. Uh, so, unless the Lord has other plans, he will be back next Sunday. Um, this morning, uh, as we look a little bit at Romans chapter 1, uh, this is going to be a little bit more topical, but uh, when the topic is based on Scripture, it can be very useful to us and really help us examine our lives and make sure that we're on the right track in our living for the Lord. And I just start out by making a statement that all people are very religious. All people are very religious. If we uh, traveled around the world, we would find that all people, regardless of what country you visit or what ethnicity we're talking about, they are very religious. And before you think that I've kind of checked out, and I don't know your neighbors very well. Well, I know my neighbors too, and it would appear that they are not very religious. But you see, the reality is that all people inevitably bow at some shrine. We were, the reality is, we were made as people who must worship. We were made as people who must worship, and the reality is everybody worships. Everybody worships at some throne, at some shrine. See, people either worship the true God or they worship some false substitution for the true God. And those are really the only two options. And so if I ask then, what is the prevalent religion of our day, you wouldn't have to think too long to come up with the right answer. And the correct answer is that people generally worship self. People worship themselves primarily. Self-worship, self-satisfaction, being able to express my feelings, identifying as I choose, freedom to choose what I want to do with my body. We've all heard those phrases, right? And, and uh, that just indicates that we're talking about people who are immersed in a religion of self-worship. By the way, the whole transgender movement sweeping across our nation and the world to the extent now that laws favor transgender issues more than they do Christian expression of worship is indicating to us that we should be very aware that that is a religion that is rooted in self-expression at all other costs. This religion that is rooted in self puts self-expression and feelings over objective truth. Truth, in other words, takes a back seat. It's all about how I feel, how I feel I must express myself. And all that to say that human beings are incurably religious. They will worship somewhere and where worship has gone in our culture and at this point in history is a, a very sad reality of a departure from worshiping the true God. Well, Romans chapter 1 tells us this because it says clearly, and you all know this, 
that when man knew God, he glorified him not as God. And turning his back on the true God, he began to worship the creature more than the creator. He made gods out of wood and stone. He began to worship man and beasts and creeping things. Look uh, at Romans chapter 1, just starting at verse 18. Let me read a few verses here for us. It says there, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then it goes on and it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. What this passage is telling us is that man is a religious being And if he turns his back on the true God, he will not go into a vacuum, but he will create other gods out of snakes, birds, animals, creation, and unfortunately, other men and even himself. And that's certainly what we have observed in our current day. He will worship the creature if he does not worship the creator. Man will worship the creature if he does not worship the creator. Now, whenever man does this, and whenever man invents or concocts or prescribes or defines his own God, he makes him into the kind of God he wants him to be. And after this, he typically becomes like his God. And so here's man making the God that he wants to exist, and then he becomes like that God that he himself has manufactured Have you ever heard someone say, well, don't you think God would understand this? Or don't you think God would see things this way? And really what they're saying is, is don't you think God sees things the way I see things? And unfortunately, you'll even hear this from uh, well-meaning but doctrinally weak Christians, and they're assuming that God thinks the way they do. Does God think the way we do? Well, they fail to remember who God is in Scripture and really understand him. Uh, We need to take heed to the words in Psalm 50 where, where the writer speaking for God is rebuking those who are reading and he says, you thought I was one like you. God is not one like us. We need to strive to be understanding who God is and then we can think correctly. We don't start with our thinking and expect to God to come around to our way of thinking, if that's the case, we have created a God in our own image. Here's, here's an important point. If, you're, if you have trouble listening to a long sermon, if you just remember this next thing I say, you'll have something to take with you. And that is, if your experience and your human understanding is informing your view of God and your theology, you have a problem. I need to repeat that. If your experience and your human understanding is informing your view of God and your theology, you have a problem. In other words, we don't start with experience and what we understand to understand who God is. Now, if Scripture is informing your theology and you are interpreting your experiences in light of God's Word, then you know the God of Scripture and then you are on the right road in your understanding. Do you get the difference? What, what are you starting with as true? Are you starting with your experiences? Or are you starting with Scripture? And if you want to understand God and you want to have your life straightened out, you want to see it with clarity, you need to start with Scripture. I, I should just warn you, if you're going to do that, you're going to be in a minority. Experience, how I feel, 
how I identify, that rules the world today. We start with Scripture. That's what sets us apart. We need to get that straight in our thinking. Now, the Old Testament tells us a lot about man's religious nature and how all this comes to pass. It's characteristic of of man to create a God like himself and then become more and more like that God. And think about it, when man does that, that's a really convenient way to accommodate his sinfulness. If I make a God in my image, he allows certain behavior on my part, right? And it's not a problem. It's not sin that has to be dealt with then. The difficulty with worshiping the true God is that we have to face the reality of our inadequacy and our sinfulness. Have you found that? As you worship the true God, you read Scripture, you're convicted, right? There are areas in your life that need to change, and that's how it should be as we strive to become more like Christ. But if that is rejected and people invent a God who is a lot like you, then it's a lot easier to live with a God like that. And that's what's happening all around us in our culture. In Psalm 115, There's an insight into how man does this. It says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, for your mercy and for your truth's sake. The psalm begins with a statement that God is to be glorified, and then it goes on, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, they do not make a sound in their throat. And then listen to this, what the psalm says, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So people become like the gods that they manufacture. So they make them, and they're like them. Men invent gods of their own imaginations. You know that Scripture says God created man in his own image, but man creates gods in his image. The ultimate rebellion here is what we're observing. Man inventing his own gods. So there's this conflict in the world, and the conflict is between the worship of the true God and the worship of the false gods made out of the imagination and the mind of men. Deities made by men, unfortunately, always express the sinfulness of men. That's where the problem really comes in. So man invents his gods to accommodate his own vile sinfulness, And as a result, when men invent gods, those gods lead men into immorality because they'll be gods that reflect the sinfulness of men, of the men who invented them. And that's why in Romans 1 it says, they knew God, but they glorified him not as God. They changed the glory of God into an image. They made their own idols. Back in Romans uh, chapter 1, I'll pick up the passage where I left off a few minutes ago in verse 24, just three or four more verses here. It says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, when you have rejected the true God, you have the establishment of false gods, and then you have the consequence of immorality that starts in verse 24 and following, and it goes all the way down to verse 32, and it talks about giving them up to vile affections. It talks about homosexuality and in burning in lust towards one another. 
and unrighteousness and fornication and wickedness and covetousness and envy and murder and strife and on and on. And all that's listed there in those verses in Romans 1 are simply the consequences of the kind of worship that man himself builds. So you see, this isn't a small matter here that people are creating their own gods to worship. The consequences are devastating. It also says when man does that, he not only does these things, but then he has pleasure in doing them. And the bottom line here in what I've been describing in the last few minutes is simply idolatry. Men have created their own gods. And that is what idolatry can be defined as. Notice here, um, we are on the cusp of really defining what is the problem in our current day. What's the problem in our society? It's not the wrong person elected to office. It's not the wrong political party in power. It's the rejection of the true God and the creation of idols and worship of those idols. So idolatry then is the corruption of true worship And from the very beginning, man has always set up his false gods, and the running conflict has gone on through all of human history. The conflict between the worship of the true God and the worship of false gods, remember, everybody's a worshiper. We were made to worship. The only question is, is it the true God that you are worshiping, or are you worshiping an idol? We can say here, as a result, that idolatry is the most basic human problem that God is concerned about. Idolatry is the most basic problem in terms of the life of man that God is concerned about. And you might say, well, how do you know that? That's that's quite a statement. We're talking about the number one problem here. Well, we know that because... It says so in Exodus chapter 20, that's the first of the Ten Commandments that God gave, and it relates to idolatry. You can just listen, but it's Exodus 23 and 4. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them For I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So there you have the first and second commandments. The first one, have no gods before me. The second one, make no graven image. The primary issue then here in the Ten Commandments, the beginning of all of it, is the affirmation that there is to be no God substituted for the true God, and that has been God's biggest problem in dealing with men from the very beginning. Men keep drifting off and worshiping other gods. So Romans 1, as we have seen, charts the course for us. It traces this shipwreck that results when God is thrown overboard When you abandon God and you turn God loose and you let God go, then you invent your own gods because man is going to be religious. And then inventing his own gods, he makes gods like himself and he becomes more and more like them and he damns his soul in the process. And that is what we are observing. So Exodus chapter 20 says, You shall have no gods before me, And Isaiah tells us again and again in chapter 43 that there is none other but the true God. And in Deuteronomy it says, The Lord our God is one Lord. So the Bible explicitly says there are no other gods but the true God. The Bible literally crushes all idols, whether they are idols of stone or wood or metal, but also idols of the mind and of the heart. Idols of the emotions, whether they are tangible or intangible, whether they are external or internal, all idols are crushed in the statement of God, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make unto yourself any graven image. 
And yet, man continues this flight into idolatry, and he has from the beginning. There's a preacher and author named Leslie Flynn, and he said this. He said, like the flow of a river which cannot be stopped, but which can be diverted, the yearning of man's soul for an object of worship can easily turn from the true God to another God. So the scripture over and over forbids idolatry. Just to give you a sample, idolatry is described in these terms. It's an abomination to God in Deuteronomy 7. It's hateful to God in Deuteronomy 16. It's vain and foolish in Psalm 115. It's bloody in Ezekiel 23. It's abominable in 1 Peter 4. It's defiling in Ezekiel 20. You kind of get the picture right. It's a bad thing. It's idolatry. And from another angle, idolatry results in men doing the following. It makes men forget God, go astray from God, pollute the name of God, defile the sanctuary of God, estrange themselves from God, forsake God, hate God, and provoke God. And Scripture further says that idolatry will be punished with a judicial death, a dreadful judgment that ends in death, exclusion from heaven, and eternal torment. Ooh, that's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? Idolatry. So God has said a lot about idolatry, and because of its seriousness, Scripture also has warnings about idolatry, and they're really, really three simple statements uh, when it comes to idolatry. The first thing Scripture says about idolatry is to flee it in 1 Corinthians 10. The second thing it says in 1 Corinthians 10, a few verses later, is to have no fellowship at all, that is to avoid it. And then the third one in John 5.21 simply says, Stay away from it, my little children. Keep yourselves from idols. For So what the Bible says here, flee it, stay away from it, avoid it, all saying basically the same thing. Idols have no place. Just keep them out of your life. You don't even want to be near idols. So at this point, you may be saying, well, we don't have any idols. We're, we're a sophisticated culture here, 21st century, right? The thing is that we do, in fact, have idols, and the presence of idols is probably greater now than any other time in human history. And you might be wondering how I can say that. Well, just look at everything there is available to distract us from the true God. We live in an entertainment culture, right? I mean, you, you have plans this afternoon. You have things to do. You hope I don't go past 2 o'clock, right? You have things to do. Our lives are literally filled with idols. Now, idolatry may be external in some societies, but in others like ours, idols are primarily internal. There are millions of people in our Society in our Western culture here would never think of bowing their knee to a stone image, and that would just seem ridiculous to them, bowing down to something wood or something metal, and probably everyone here fits into that category, but yet we are in danger of spending our entire life bowing down to some empty, useless God that we've established in our own mind or in our own heart. An idol is anything that you put before God. There is a, a pastor and author by the name of Brad Bigney who has a book he's written called Gospel Treason. I believe his uh, series that he preached on this is available online, right, Sherry? Sherry can show you where that is. And he has a, a really great definition here for an idol. He says an idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts, minds, or affections more than God. So the question is, what is it in our lives that comes before God? What do we put before God? It could be your car, it could be your hobby, your house, your wife, your family, or anybody else. 
It can be things like education or work or reputation or your retirement account or any other item in your life. There is a, a poll given to a number of Christian scholars a number of years back, and the question was, what are the most prevalent gods of our time? And they mentioned many things like the anti-Christian welfare state, political systems, social adjustment, humanism, and also things like self and money and pleasure and amusement and sports and education. And their primary conclusion that was that we need to return to the first commandment in light of the cross. We have too many gods before the true God. Now, let's think about our day and age. If we think about the 21st century and what constitute idols in our day, and we boil them down, there's a list that I've kind of compiled here that I'll run past you. First of all, we worship the God of possessions, don't we? We worship the God of possessions. We live in a very affluent culture. Nobody here wonders where their next meal is coming from, but we allow possessions to usurp the place of God. The question is, do you spend more time thinking about possessions than you do about God? Do you spend more of your energy, more of your resources on possessions than you do God? That might be a good indicator that you have a problem in the area of possessions if it seems at times your possessions own you. Unfortunately, we can be so concerned about possessions that we've forgotten that they are a gift of God. One of the things that I'm amazed about as I drive around Itasca County here is just the proliferation of storage units. We have so many things, we can't even get them in our house and in our garage anymore. And I understand there's a place for that. Actually, A.J. Smith Custom Carpentry, they love storage units because they build them all the time. It's a part of their business, and nothing against that. But, you know, how many, how many storage units full of stuff do you have before they, those possessions start owning you? I, I know people who have storage units, and they have no idea what's in the back corner there because they have piled stuff in there, and, you know, what's the point? You know, if you don't even know what you have anymore, I think you have too much stuff. Well, another potential idol for us is plenty or the love of money. Colossians 3 says covetousness is idolatry. When you covet something, you worship it. And thinking about this concept of plenty, the scripture that comes to mind here, you remember about the rich man, and he couldn't get everything in his barns, so he tore, tore down his barns and he built bigger barns? Good idea, right? Unfortunately, after he said, I'll just build bigger barns and bigger barns and store all my crop, and then I'll have it made, and the Lord said to him, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And now what? Accumulating more did not do anything for the man. And then there's the potential idol of pride. And the main god of our society is the love of self. We could say that people are a god in our society. And we could, uh, under the category of pride, be so self-focused that we are of little use to God. We're really worshiping ourselves. But it could also be our children it could be family. Some people could be worshiping their spouse. Some could worship a friend. Many people simply worship themselves. If you have ever found yourself or heard someone else saying, I must have, fill in the blank, I must have, that's an indication that idolatry is really the root of the problem. In contrast to that line of thought, a couple of scriptural examples here will help us to think rightly about that. First was the example of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. Remember, she had no children, and she prayed for a long time and begged God to give her a son. 
and God gave her a son, but then she didn't worship the son. She gave the child to the Lord to assist Eli the priest, and then she walked away and said that's the way it ought to be because that's the best place for the child. Right? Can you imagine praying for all that time for a son and then gave him to the Lord? And then, of course, there's Abraham who waited and waited and waited until he's 100 years old to have a son, the son of promise that the whole nation of Israel was going to come from, right? And then God said, I want that son, I want him on the altar, and I want him dead. And what did Abraham say? Okay. Okay. All right, God, I love that son, but I don't worship that son above you. And if you say, I'll slay him, I'll slay him. And of course, we know that God intervened as the knife was plunging toward Isaac there. But we do make gods out of people, and we make gods out of pride, and we make gods out of plenty and possessions. And of course, I'm not saying that we don't love people, but the question is, do they capture our hearts, minds, or affections more than God? God demands first place if we're going to worship him. Here's an interesting story I came across. Charles Spurgeon, you remember, the great preacher in the 19th century. Just before he got married, he had picked up his fiancée to take her to a place where he was going to preach. And they were separated in the jostling crowd. You know, there were thousands of people that came to hear Spurgeon preach. And they were all pushing in to hear him preach, and so he pushed his way up to the platform and he preached, and after the meeting was over, he couldn't find her anywhere, so he just went over to her house to see if she was there, and sure enough, she was, and she was sitting there pouting. And she said, Charles, you left me in that crowd all alone, and you weren't even concerned where I was. And this is what he replied. He said, I'm sorry, but perhaps what happened was providential. I didn't intend to be impolite, but whenever I see a crowd like that waiting for me to preach, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of responsibility. I forgot about you. Now let's get one thing straight. It will have to be the rule of our marriage that the command of my master comes first. You shall have the second place. Are you willing to, as my wife, take second place while I give first place to Christ? Well, she was willing and became a faithful wife. To my knowledge, Spurgeon never wrote on the best ways to court a prospective wife and propose to her. <laughs> but you get the message, right? Christ has first place. He is the object of our worship. No one and no thing can come before the Lord, or it or they become an idol. Well, no secret that pleasure and inter entertainment can also be gods in our society. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Uh, there are also other things, and we could put these under the category of projects. There are plenty of things to keep a person busy. It can be PTA, Little League, World Peace, politics, religious programs, civic organizations. You can add to the list. Any of those things can become a god in a person's life. And then there's prominence, of course. Some people live to be thought of, thought well of by others. They want the chief seat in the banquet. They love to see their name in the paper. They want to be the chairman. And all of these gods end up in the trash heap of an empty, burned-out life. The reality here is man is religious. He will worship something. By the way, the ladies of the church here are presently going through a study using a book, When People Are Big and God is Small, and I'd highly recommend it if you haven't read it. And it's just another way that idolatry can happen when we consider what people think of us more than what God thinks of us. And it's something to be on guard of because it can happen very, very easily. Of course, idolatry can also take more hideous forms Alcohol, drugs, pornography, gambling, all those kinds of things. Our society likes to label these as addictions, perhaps to excuse people from the behaviors, but God sees idolatry and being controlled by such things rather than being controlled by the Spirit of the living God is idolatry. 
There's a story, really a parable, about an idol-burning ceremony in the backyard of a church. Apparently they, they were convicted about idolatry, and every person had torn from his heart his dearest possession or ambition or his dearest achievement, and they took it all and they put it on a heap in the back of the church, and they said, we're going to burn it. And some people brought their long hair there, some put their new uh, PhD degree there, some put their favorite antique there, some put their beautiful clothing there, but nobody could find a match when it came time to light it up. And, oh, what an inconvenience, you know, kind of the, kind of the, the big climax couldn't happen, but they left the pile there, and the parable says they all agreed that failure to burn those things didn't mean they weren't willing to give them up, so the group slowly drifted back to their homes with one or two backward glances, and they left their idols there on the pile. Well, one lady didn't sleep well that night, and she at last convinced herself that what she had given up and put on the pile was really no idol at all, and early the next morning, she sneaked back to the pile, hoping not to be seen. And when she got there, she found her idol lonely and forlorn, the only one still left. <laughs> so, people cling to their idols. And we need to be honest, we may well be among those people clinging to our idols Idolatry can also be worshiping symbols that may stand for God. Throughout church history, this has been a problem. When the church was in its early stages of Romanism, uh, a lot of things were put into statues, and, and the Roman church still does that to a large extent, and there are statues everywhere. So you have crucifixes and other images and saints and all those kinds of things, and they can represent a kind of idolatry and you might say, well, we really don't worship the idols. It's just the representation there. Well, that may be true, but the transition is very, very subtle. Remember what John Calvin said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. It is so easy for, for us to fall into idolatry. There's a great illustration of this in... Uh, Numbers chapter 21, and you'll all recall this as I relay it to you. This is when the, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and the people of Israel started dying, right? And Moses was the leader there, and uh, they did this, or the serpents were sent because the people were disobedient to God, and the, the people cried out to Moses, and they wanted relief from this, and they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents away from us. And it says, Moses stood on their behalf, and he prayed, and the Lord answered and said, Make a serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks up, shall live. Right? You remember how that worked. And so the children of Israel had sinned, and God says, there's going to be a punishment. The snakes are going to bite you. If you look at the pole, you'll be okay. Now, you know that the pole was a symbol of God's power, and to look at the pole required obedience, right? There was no power in the pole. It was a piece of wood. The serpent was made of brass, bronze. There's no power in those images. It was a matter of obedience and faith for the people to look at them the power was with God to look at the pole was simply an identification of their faith and an act of obedience. But now watch what happened. If you go over to 2 Kings chapter 18, along comes King Hezekiah later in the history of Israel and in Judah, and Hezekiah reigns as king and he rids the land of idols. Idols are all over. He breaks down the idols and one of the things he does in this revival is in verse 4, it says he removed the high places and broke the images and cut down idols. So he wiped out the idolatry and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days the children of Israel had made offerings to it. Oh, man, the bronze serpent had saved the people. What did they do? They kept it as an idol. And all these years they had been made offerings to it. 
He broke it in pieces and it says, he called it Nehushtan, which means that little brass thing. In other words, Hezekiah treated that thing with disdain. And he said, here you people have been worshiping this little brass thing and he broke it to pieces. Something that started out as such a good symbol, people made it into an idol. Well, that's always the danger that man will twist the symbol into an idol so it's so easy to end up in idolatry. And as you can tell, God clearly forbids idolatry in Scripture. Well, it's time to get honest about this. Every person here has likely been guilty of idolatry at some point in our lives. We've let our priorities get out of whack and put something in our lives before God. Fortunately for us, God is often gentle and patient and shows us our idolatry and is quick to forgive when we repent. The question for us today, as we prepare for the Lord's table, is, is there an idol in your life today that you need to forsake? Remember, you shall have no other gods before me. The question is, what are you worshiping or who are you worshiping? If it's anything other than the God of Scripture, it's something we need to correct in our lives. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11.28, each one must examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. So again, that examination is, what do you worship this morning? What is the object of your worship? If I ask you the question, is there an idol in your life, what immediately comes to mind? If there's something or someone that has popped into your mind, maybe, maybe that's something you need to deal with. Maybe that's an indication of an idol that you need to put out of your life. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you have all kinds of idols and you're living a life that's denying the glory of God, this could be the day that you come to Christ and recognize him as Savior and confess him as Lord. There are probably others here today who are Christians and Christ is your Lord, yet you find yourself diverted so often like that river that Mr. Flynn wrote about. There's a river that's flowing, but so often it's diverted away from the true God. This would be a good time for you to confess that to God and get your priorities right again. Remember, Christ alone is to be king. If the men can come forward now, and we will participate in communion together. Our prayer this morning really needs to be that if... Idolatry is live and well to any extent in our lives that we would take care of that. Scott, as we prepare to pass the bread, would you please pray?
The Bible tells us, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Bill, would you please stand and pray before we pass the cup? Scripture tells us regarding the cup in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Please stand if you will. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed this morning. Father, thank you for this time of remembrance remembering your death, burial, and resurrection, and we're so thankful for the life that you give us in Christ. Father, I also pray that you would continue to work into us, making us like our Lord, and we know that that cannot happen when idolatry is a part of who we are. Help us to recognize the idols that need to be done away with. Help us to be devoted to you with nothing and no one in our lives 
before you. Give us the strength to do this by your Spirit, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.